472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, sitting next to Ethan Broga. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. Good to see you. Good to be here. This show, Empirical Investing Radio, is designed to share with you prudent investment and financial planning ideas, the likes of which we've never seen before. (laughs) (laughs) The likes of which we hope will uh, help you to make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions to help you build, preserve, and enjoy the uh, fruits of your labor, as our partner Jack Monteith likes to say. Yeah. And uh, today, Ethan, I thought we could do a little market overview, just kind of talk about kind of where we're at year-to-date in various investment asset classes and share a little insight about how we're investing and then maybe talk about some other financial planning and or investment-related topics that you've brought today. Sounds great. Sounds sounds pretty good. Yeah. Um, before we do all that, do you want to give out some contact information? Sure, that sounds fine. I, I believe our... Uh our contact via email is down today, so I won't give that out. Uh, so if you'd like to reach us during the live broadcast today, give us a call at 866-472-5790. And uh, we'll obviously be screening the calls, so uh, come prepared with a good question. Um, and Ken, should we talk about the individual investors out there and the professionals out there as well? Yeah, let's do that. Let's yeah. do that. And as usual, if you're uh, an individual investor looking to um, perhaps get a second opinion on your current portfolio, perhaps you're near retirement, uh, um, would like some help or guidance anyway on uh, how best to claim Social Security, um, evaluating, evaluating your, your possibly your pension, uh, or building a, uh, a retirement plan, uh, we, we would love to help you with that. Um, so please feel free to give us a call. And you can reach us for that purpose um, at our direct line here in Seattle at 206-923-3474. And feel free to ask for Ken or Ethan. Uh, by the way, we do uh, hourly financial plans as well as uh, our, which is our normal way of doing business, which is ongoing relationships, helping folks um, in the areas of tax, uh, investments, and retirement. Uh, if you're a professional investor out there, um, perhaps you're looking to uh, partner up with a very well-established, successful firm um, that's built an infrastructure entirely designed around helping clients make consistently smart financial choices, We'd love to hear from you as well. Give us a call at 206-923-3474. Okay. What's next, Ken? Hey, I like that song. Yeah, it's pretty good, huh? Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of scandals on Wall Street on a day-to-day basis. So That's true. I was just reading about uh, a couple of things, and the song kind of came to my mind. Bring it back. Okay, so I thought we could talk. Uh, I don't know. Let's go through what, what's the what's the market doing here? Man, Elliot Hot put together a data sheet, and uh, looks like today the market was just down slightly. The Dow Jones was off a few points, um, closing at thirteen one sixty five. But that's a pretty good rebound in the last. Few weeks here. I agree. Yeah. Um, how quickly things do turn. Pretty amazing. You know, um, definitely keeps the financial media on their toes. Yeah. But um, a year ago, we were at eleven thousand two thirty nine. Uh, a year ago, today. Yep. So 
that's it's uh, about seventeen percent. Yeah, from last year. I, I remember a year ago. Looking back, yeah, tell a year me ago, about it. Um, I remember because that week, the first week, maybe ten days of uh, of August two thousand and eleven, the market was pretty volatile. We have, were market was shaken by several down sessions of uh, considerably more than three hundred points uh, a pop. Um, so yes, from there it's really quite rebounded quite nicely. Yeah, quite nicely. It was memorable, especially because I was actually uh, down in uh, on the coast, Washington coast, that particular week. A luxurious vacation. Yeah, well, it wasn't as luxurious as I would have hoped because of oh. the market conditions. Oh, that's right. It was yeah. poor conditions. So, um, anyway. yeah, certainly, I don't think a lot of people were saying uh, the S and P will be up nineteen percent a year from now, <laughs> right? <laughs> Indeed. So it's always interesting to think that, put that perspective on when we get to a particular point. So. Uh, the um, EFA though it's only up about one percent over the last year. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, the international market index. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, emerging markets is up about three tenths of a percent from a year ago. Um, those are some interesting areas for the uh, to think about in terms of the first significant market downturn in the early period of time. Uh, world stock market index. Then, if we look at uh, just say the the total uh, world stock market ETF, VT, mm-hmm. up about 9.5% then from a year ago. Mm-hmm. So we've seen most of that recovery here or the return of last year in the U.S. That's right. So uh, let's see where we're at on the treasuries. So 10-year treasury at 1.69, so slightly up from 1.48 last year on the yield. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, 10-year AAA corporates on average 2.59, also up from 2.5%. So on the 10-year Treasury, you've got a spread here of about 9 tenths of 1%. Last week, it was about 1.02. 10-year Treasury inflation uh, protected um, tips, you have a negative Nominal yield here of six tenths of one percent. Last week it was uh, seven tenths, negative seven tenths of one percent. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're looking at a break-even inflation rate then of about two point two nine percent. So last week the break-even inflation rate on that ten-year Treasury inflation-protected security was two point one eight percent. Yeah, if I recall, I think inflation's been running a little higher than that anyway, around closer to three percent for the last year or so, if I remember right. Okay. I'll have to put that on here. Um, Elliot, make a note of that. <laughs> so we have it at our fingertips. <laughs> Sounds um, fair. Prime rate, still three and a quarter, unchanged. You got your 30-year mortgage, 3.62%. Last week it was 3.58. So a little high, but still very, very low. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at buying one-year CDs, the average is about 0.71 percent on a one year do you like that ethan well it's awfully low but yeah. uh, i guess it's better than other things uh, of similar risk and maturity yeah gold's up uh, about 19 dollars an ounce 1619 crude oil 113 last week we were about 106 huh. and uh, gas 3.66 versus 3.53 so commodities up a little bit yeah, I was just hearing that. Um, yeah, what were you hearing? Gas prices, particularly on the West Coast, were likely to go up here because there, there was a 
refinery fire in California. Things are ablaze. Apparently, which will, you know, put it in decommission for a little while, and thus the gas supplies on the West Coast probably will be affected, and prices probably will rise, at least over here, uh, relative to say the East Coast or the the Midwest, where most of that oil is, or gas is given from the uh, refineries near the Gulf Coast. So, yeah, just interesting. Wow. All right. Well, that being said, real quick, Ethan, um, just kind of looking looking over the uh, some different asset classes that we tend to invest in. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at uh, where we're at year to date, yeah, let's do that. Let's just do that. Um, international real estate is an interesting investment class that we started utilizing a few years ago, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, year to date, of the major asset classes that we like to track, it's number one, up almost twenty two percent. Really? Yeah, that's years year to date. That's amazing. That's pretty wild, huh? It is. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> I mean, the purpose of diversification, right, is that you add in various asset classes. You don't know um, exactly over any short period of time which one's going to outperform or be the number one performer in the group. Yeah, I don't recall a lot of people saying, hey, this is the year for national real estate coming into the The victory cry for uh, right. international real estate. No, I didn't hear anybody say that, so... That's pretty wild. It is spread. So just for this uh, quarter to date here, from the end of June 30, uh-huh. uh, the international real estate's up about 6.37%. Wow. That's remarkable. You like that, don't you? I do like that. All right, here's what I'm going to do for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Um, this is getting more, more and more like Wayne's World now all of a sudden. <laughs> it's Ken's World. Right, right. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. If you look at the second top year-to-date, again, of not of every investment asset class, these are the broad ones that we tend to track. And which ones do we tend to track, Ethan? Maybe you should share that. What are the core building blocks to what we believe is a reasonably globally diversified portfolio? Well, in each of the major asset or rather, each of the major economies, we have uh, the U.S., international, and emerging markets, for starters. Uh, in those those asset classes, we tend to have exposure to sort of the the blend, the large cap blend index, and then build around that with a little more uh, unique asset classes, including uh, small cap exposure, exposure to, to value companies, both large and small. Um, so that's the case for U.S., international, and emerging. We have also global real estate, domestic real estate, and commodities. Good stuff. Yeah, about 15 altogether. And if you have questions about why we invest in those, um, that we're not, you're not quite gleaning over the various radio programs we're, whole, we're having here, feel free to give us a call. And sure. if you want to talk to us outside of the radio show, you can do that at 1-800-923-4307. Ask for Ken or Ethan, and we'll be happy to talk to you personally and explain in more detail. There's so much um, about the way we invest and so much research supporting it. But uh, we don't want to cover every single radio program. Sure. But I uh, would love to share, spend some time explaining that to, to you uh, in person, wherever you're at. So you, you have U.S. real estate at number two at 15% year-to-date, Ethan. Wow. You know what? Real quick. Okay. Pause well, yeah. Hit the break. That's, hit that's the surprising break. as well. If I recall, last year, 2011, for the calendar year, that U.S. real estate was the best-performing asset group among the bunch. Again, I wouldn't have. Uh, I don't recall many people saying, "Hey, this is the year for domestic real estate." 
you know, 2011. Um, Nobody was pounding the, t- the desk on that one? So it's a bit of a, bit of a surprise, uh, not so much to me, because I, I think these things are kind of random when they occur, but um, it isn't what people are talking about on the news, that's for darn sure, is my main point. Right, right. A huge surprise. Right. So I took you off track there, but... Uh, okay, let me get back on track. No, that's <laughs> fine. Uh, then you have uh, large value companies, um, Year to date, they are up uh, using the dimensional funds as one of the institutional funds we we like to use. And I'm using their fund to track this, but it's up 12.99%, so basically 13% year to date. Wow. That is Jehuhuhu C. I'm interested to see what the the large cap U.S. fund has done, just the plain vanilla one. Well, just the plain vanilla U.S. large cap is you know I don't have it on this list here. Um, do we have that on the hot sheet here? Do we have year to date? It doesn't have year to date. That's why I was oh, asking. It has never the, mind the Dow Jones and S and P for the one year, but that isn't the time period we're covering currently. All right. Well, I'm going to try to remain calm. This is a miserable failure, Elliot. A miserable <laughs> failure. We he he can't read minds in yeah, advance well, of me knowing. Well, I'm going to think think about this. What is this, man? What is this? Uh, hold on a second. I'm gonna switch over to all funds and and I and I will get this data for you forthwith. I appreciate that. Um, in the meantime, go ahead, give out our contact information. Yeah, if you have a question about these returns for the <laughs> for the radio program, give us a call eight six six four four seven two five seven nine zero. Elliot's cracking up. Yeah. Okay, here it is. U.S. large cap, uh, U.S. large company portfolio is up twelve point eight four percent. Okay. So value uh, slightly ahead of that. Okay. And um, there you have it again. Um, if we are rolling down here, though, then we get to, uh, if we look at another major asset class, U.S. small cap portfolio up 9.55% okay. year to date. Um, emerging markets, small cap up 9.26, micro cap up 921 now this is your date, and I, I it brings me to to uh, I, I want to come back to something about um, just we were talking about from a couple of shows ago, and and that was somebody saying, oh I, I read an article in some uh, you know make money fast type of magazine kind of scenario, and they were saying hey just buy these uh, a group of specific Vanguard funds and. Um, the premise was, hey, you don't need any. You shouldn't be paying any kind of advisory fees, right? Yeah, if I recall, because returns are going to be lower or something to that effect. Right, and you and I know we're we're at the forefront of not paying any additional fees on anything because we realize that cost is certainly one of the controllable factors involved in investing. Um, there are many that most people overlook that are substantially more detrimental. If you choose to overlook them, like lack of diversification, it could be one, right? Or just prop- not understanding how to properly build a portfolio. Right. Uh, to extract all that the capital market offers um, and or use the tools available to protect you from undue risk. Right. But that's another story, Ethan. Fair enough. That's a whole different fairy tale. <laughs> and we're not going to tell that one right now. <laughs> what I'm saying is if you're just going through the year-to-date numbers and we close a year here, who knows – um, the, the gist of the article, the reason why was because we all know that we're going to have lower returns going forward, right? 
that's this is not this data is not corroborating with that notion when you have asset classes here that are up 20% year to date yeah so it's always shocking because um when you're tracking i guess some general component of the market and it tends to be when something's not doing well uh so we were going through europe it's great if you're if you are a uh article writer to put out something real quick and go, hey, we all know returns are going to be low because we're in a miserable time. So do this or that. And I guess that scratches people where they may be itching. But it's really not a great way to take financial advice. And the data belies that, those types of approaches again and again and again. Indeed. My body belies me, I'm fertile mine. So anyway. um, (laughs) I don't know that song. uh, That's a good one. Uh, where were we? So just kind of cruising through these, Ethan, and, and you have to take a break. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll finish up the market update. And then I want to talk a little bit about um, why we don't always make the best investment decisions. Sounds good. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your co-host, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith here. Uh, once again, if you'd like to give us a call during the show, uh, feel free to do so at 866-472-5790. Uh, you know, we'd love to have your participation on the show today. It's been a long time since you called. I think you should pick up the phone and give us a ring. Just whatever you're feeling. I think it's appropriate. Talk about it. Never get angry yes, I think you should. 866 866- Four seven two five seven nine zero. That's good. That's good stuff. Before the break, we were just talking about some year-to-date returns, and I think okay. Elliot solved our problem. No, he didn't. He didn't solve the problem yet. No, no you have the year-to-date returns on, on your screen there. Um, I'd like to know uh, if we're going to cover a little more about that. What the worst returning ones are year-to-date? Okay, that. yeah, that's good. Let's turn this uh, frown upside down here. Let me reverse this uh, data. Put the losers on the top. Um, so, so far, if you were loading up on Japanese small company stocks, they're um, the worst performer of the various tracked here, negative or a positive 0.26. But um, outside of that anomaly here, most of the bond uh, asset classes, while positive, um, are, you know, they're not, they're not uh, shooting the lights out, per se. How about the lowest returning equity asset classes? Well, there you have it. Um, let me switch over. Sorry, I kind of had had already switched gears on a few. Oh, sorry, I didn't, things uh, here. The show was throw you so, off there. It's no problem. It's no problem. We got our we got it under control. <laughs> um, so on the equity side, what we're looking at is um, international small company up five point six six. Okay. Large cap international up six point six six. Emerging markets value up six point nine. Emerging markets up eight point one seven. You know, I bet most folks would uh, would have expected that, uh, vis-a-vis the European debt crisis currently going on, that all of those returns for the international equity asset classes would be negative this year, not positive, right? Right. Whether it be international small or you know, emerging markets or international large cap companies, most people going into this year, knowing what's going on, other would have said would have bet probably that um, they'd be negative returns or certainly very low, um, but yet that's not the case. I find that uh, intriguing. You do find that intriguing. Yeah. Well, I, I find it intriguing as well. And if you look at the global equity, if you look at just a global equity portfolio, you're up about 9.4%. So that would kind of be our middle of the road global, but I'm just looking at the yeah. eventual global fund. Right. Up 9.55. Well, that's for half of a year, right? Yeah. A little over half, I'm sorry. Um, so I don't, I just find it shocking because then again, if you look, if you follow and track the numbers, there are ways of constructing very viable portfolios that have a very reasonable amount of risk um, that are still doing okay relative to we're going to have horrible returns. Yeah, I mean that reminds me of the Bill Gross um, article that came out a couple weeks ago. It's funny you should mention that. I just pulled it uh, pulled up a little piece on that. Oh, I have it right here. Okay, let's talk about it. Uh, well, it just says that, hey, the, what does it say? Sort of a cult of, of equities, he says. 
uh, basically the long-term historical average return for stocks is, has been getting lower and lower. Okay. And that he's, it's likely that that'll persist into the future. And he has some pretty bold remarks, actually, regarding uh, the future of stocks. Uh, it seems like a recurrence of the Death of Equities article we've mentioned numerous times on the show. And that's what others, some people have recognized and commented about, because he was, he was um, significantly off in his last market prediction. Yep. I think about the market going down to something in the four or 5,000 range. Yep. Um, and then also the prediction about uh, treasuries in 2011. He said, get the heck out of treasuries. In fact, I believe he sold all the treasury, U.S. treasuries away from his, the PIMCO bond fund. But, yeah, they did very, very well that year. We talked about this one when we looked uh, at the data from a uh, famous fund man- manager, Ken Hebner. And so recently we were talking about that and how one of the things you have to protect yourself from, you diversify a portfolio to protect yourself from any one company losing significant value, usually to un- for unexpected reasons. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot of what... We in the as professionals in in the in this industry define as say uh, unsystematic or unmar- non market risks of owning a particular company, right? Mm-hmm. And those risks are business risks, financial risk. Suddenly, the management decides to leverage the company to the hilt. Maybe they had a great business model, but they took on too much leverage. So, the example of financial business risk is: Hey, uh, suddenly. Apple has the iPhone and Samsung comes up with a phone that's very similar but only better and cheaper. And I was just reading about they're they're in a big patent dispute right now. But let's say the outcome of that doesn't work out for Apple, right? Mm -hmm. That could be a potentially damaging um, risk specific to that company because they put a lot of money in developing that technology, right? But maybe something else comes out completely better or different, right, Or, or lower cost. Um, all of these things. And then you have the the idea that there may be some fraud occasionally in a small number of companies. I think the news would have you believe it's pervasive in 9 out of 10 companies or and, and CEOs or crooks. Yeah, right. But in reality, it's, it's a pretty small percentage when we look at it to the degree of an Enron kind of situation or, or others. Um, but how do you protect yourself from that? And what I'm saying is there's another layer of protection you need, and that is uh, anytime you're engaging in active management strategies, and that is a strategy that relies on someone's opinion rather than the science of investing, or we call it evidence-based investing. So our approach when we're investing is to say, well, we don't listen to guys. Uh, we don't necessarily listen to guys like Bill Gross, who he, he's – claim to fame, right, has been running large quantities of bond money. And whether he has some skill or not is not even the debate, right? He's probably added some value. Even the academics who don't believe in active management as an ongoing approach that someone should take would agree that, hey, there have been a a small number of managers out there that have added alpha or return above some risk-adjusted level. The difficulty is, can they keep up that persistently, can they keep it up persistently and not price their uh, advice in such a way in which that advantage gets uh, priced out? If you know what I mean there, Ethan. I think I do. Um, and can you predict or identify these guys in the in, in advance? Uh, you know, if if your only method of doing that is tracking who did well in the past, that's been a very poor 
uh, methodology <laughs> hasn't worked very, um, well, very well, at least empirically. But if you look at the data, it's not the greatest approach. Right. So what I'm saying, Ethan, what am I saying? What I'm saying is you have to protect yourself or diversify yourself away from taking the advice of anyone who writes an article in which the article is based more upon opinion than it is the reality of how markets function. Um, particularly if there's a, the premise of, of the opinion is that there is a breakdown in, um, in the fundamental principles of economics. And so for me, that breakdown occurs when you say, and we go back to 1979. Now we're getting serious here, Ethan. Yeah. Of this fooling around. If you go back to that 1979 Death of Equities article, the premise was that equities were dead because they really, the only evidence that they had provided in that article, if you go back and read it, was that for the previous 10 years, they hadn't done very well. They hadn't kept up above uh, inflation, mm -hmm. as well as other hard assets or even bonds did. Um, now, in reality, what you would expect to happen when there's an, an asset class that presents risk, the risk has to emerge occasionally in order for that risk to generate a long-term premium over a risk-free asset. So if equities beat inflation and beat bonds or less risky assets every single year and every every day, what if it was just every day, right? I mean, we'd all like that to find that asset class that would do that. Sure. But the reason why it affords a greater opportunity, emphasis on opportunity to, to generate a higher return over the long run, is that there will be short to intermediate periods. Um, and for many of us, we would define them as long periods because most of us have about a one-year time horizon if we're actually paying attention and monitoring our investments closely. Most of us have the patience of about one year, mm -hmm. um, which explains why we're We'll get into that article if we have some time here, this behavioral finance stuff. Um, but it explains to me why we, we have a tendency to to flip-flop in and out at the wrong times. Right. Um, but, sorry, I didn't mean to go on that long about that, Ethan. But I'm saying that you have to diversify away from that kind of advice. Sure. Because following it, if you had followed his advice the last time when he said the market was going to four or 5,000, you would have missed out on substantial, particularly if you employed the type of diversification that we're employing. You look at the returns on those portfolios over the last 12, 10, 5, 10, 12 years even, it's all positive right. returns. Um, so that advice would have, wouldn't have, have served you well if you just took one sensational headline. Yeah, I mean, if you followed the advice uh, in 2000, early 2009 to say, hey, you know, Bill, Bill Gross thinks it's going to 4,000 on the Dow. Well, I'm not going to get into how it does. Well, you'd still be waiting, and you would have lost out on a huge amount of recovery time. Yeah. What was your other thing there? Was that was that the crux of it there? Uh, I believe so. Um, I, I had some other things here as well, but I thought we could talk next about the behavioral finance. Okay. Well, so I was wrapping up some continuing education for my uh, certified financial planner designation, Ethan. Yeah. Every year, if you are a certified, if you hold the, the CFP designation, you need to have 30 hours of continuing education, including two of those at minimum on ethics, which I think is a wonderful thing and a great thing. And uh, actually, as I was re doing through the this cycle's um, ethics, uh, 
the module that I did was through the, the uh, College of Financial Planning, which they have a great program for all of you who are advisors and are looking into Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't. I'm not employed by them. I don't get paid, but I, I love the material that they put out and the way they approach the financial planning. So I would recommend it. Um, but uh, anyway, Ethan, I, I would like to get back to some of the articles they talk about in the studies and ethics about why people um, don't do the right thing in every situation. Sounds good. And it's pretty interesting. But that's not the point of this discussion. Um, one of them was I had went through the module but investor behavior behavior and investment success and i've written quite a i have read quite a bit of material on investor you can call it investment investor psychology behavioral finance Mm -hmm. um economic behavioral economics whatever you want to call it but basically it has to do with how we as individuals make economic or financial decisions and how our psychology affects those decisions right and how we frame problems or financial problems or decisions that need to be made. And if you had to summarize it all down into very short, we don't always make the most rational or, or uh, if you said the highest um, economic uh, opportunity said, like what, what would generate the highest return or positive economic return? Um, we don't always follow that path. And I thought the way that this is just a short article and uh, the lady who did it was her name is Paula F. DeVos, and I apologize if I'm not um, pronouncing that. We haven't had a guest on a while. Maybe I'll try to contact her. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, but she did a good job of summarizing some of this, and I just thought we could cover a couple of things. Um, starting with, she lays out why why aren't investors more successful, and then covering three common mistakes, um, being number one, allowing emotions to influence investment decisions. Two, investors chasing last year's winners and other hot investments. And three, investors often rely on faulty rules of thumb. And then she talks about some of the concepts of success. Uh, Go I'll ahead. I have a comment there. Yes, please, please. Not do. so much on the, the three items she lists there, but. No, no. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I've noticed um, in talking with individuals over the years is that most people who are doing their own investments, you know, work on the portfolio themselves, um, don't actually know what the return is, right? Uh, it, it, it's a di- difficult thing to, to calculate a total portfolio return over an annualized basis, particularly accounting for any cells that go may go on or if you have more than one, one security. It gets very complicated very quickly and requires a lot of math involved. Therefore, it's kind of a daunting task, and most people just don't do it. They just assume, oh, they've done pretty well. And that's what I often hear. I've done well. But precisely what does that mean? And how does that measure up to something that, you know, like just a regular index or some type of benchmark? No one actually really knows. The very, in fact, I don't know that I've met anybody um, for as long as I've been doing this that has calculated it that way, you know, gone on calculated performance and then measured it against an appropriate benchmark. Well, it's interesting you bring that up, Ethan, because for most of my earlier career, um, when I would look at individuals brokerage statements that they would get yeah. very few of them accounted for performance yeah so one naive way of looking at it would be hey the securities i currently own sometimes they would put on the website for example on a brokerage company what the gain or losses on a tax basis yeah. for example right which really calculates a very naive holding period type of return holding period meaning hey i may have bought bought securities at 
all different times. But how do you calculate what your annualized rate of return is on those by looking at a, at a page that just shows you the gains or losses on a tax basis of all of them? Right. It's not very helpful at all. No. It's a very naive way of looking at it. And furthermore, if you had dividends being uh, reinvested back into the securities, right, in reality, um, a large degree of uh, the return, say, from a bond fund might come from the dividends that are paid or the interest that gets paid. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you were looking on a tax basis, it would look like you have very little return if right. you were just ca- if you were just ca- accounting for it that way. It's not really. It's very interesting how, for such a long time, um, that if you had a, a, a basic brokerage or investment type of an account, you either had no real performance, useful performance um, tracking, uh, or it was a very naive and not very helpful way of tracking it. Right. And how many people actually know? Hey, for the last ten years, what I what was my annualized rate of return? For their entire portfolio of securities. Right. You know, if you don't know, you don't know if you need help. How can you say I don't need help? Unless you know. You have to know. Right. So most people do what they do, I think, when they buy a house, which is a very naive calculation of, I think I put about this much into into it. I bought it for this, well, when it comes to home prices, most of us... <laughs> Default to hey, this is what I think. I know what I paid for that the the purchase price was, yeah. and then what are we looking at the current market value? It's definitely worth more than that, right? But uh, yeah, I hear you. So you're saying hey, all that is important because of and reiterate one more time for us, Ethan. Yeah, if you don't know, you don't know if you need help or not. Basically, is the gist of it. Mm. And so in this article that we're referencing today, um, she she talks about a, a an often cited study. Um, the quantitative analysis of investor behavior uh, study that actually is an, an annual annual thing, and for the period from 2008, I'm sorry, 1998 to 2003, the equity markets themselves, measured by the S&P, returned about 12.9 percent per year for that period, while the average equity investor earned only 3.5 percent per year. I, I think if people measured it, they would find themselves, though they'd be very disappointed in their own results, and then it would cause them to question themselves and say, "Hey, I need to find a better solution. How can I get more of?" the good returns that are out there rather than returns I've been getting. But it's a hard thing to swallow, I think, too. It's a, Everybody wants to think you're doing a good job at something. And but maybe, the truth is, maybe you're not, maybe you are. You know, you don't know until you know. Well, in the end, you're only cheating yourself yeah. when you get into retirement or you're drawing on those assets, fooling yourself into thinking that you're doing a great job. Right. Um, for example, the the culmination of the people in this study are all of us, right? That yeah, that's investors. right. Of where they were able to get the data... Uh, I'm sure if you polled and we've and I've read several studies about this, what people actually think their returns were are significantly higher than when they are actually calculated out. That's correct. I've read That's our, our bias and tendency because we have a tendency to downplay the bad decisions or the poor right. investments in our and move the the very positive ones to the forefront of our mind. Yeah, it would cause you to have to to reconsider and, and think, you know take a lot of time to reconsider what you're actually doing and make a change, which is sometimes difficult. Well, this self-examination can sometimes be painful. Sure. I think it's good for us as financial advisors so we don't get caught up in it, so we can make better decisions for our clients. I think every advisor should be looking at that objectively. And we're going to have to take a quick break. But when we come back, then I want to go through some of this. Sounds good. Um, because I think it's critically, it's more important than anything that you're watching on one of the 
financial news networks. They're just iterating pretty much current events. But it's not real financial advice to do anything. At least you shouldn't be taking any of that yeah. uh, and applying it. But we'll talk a little bit about that. We've got one more good segment here to, to run with this. Sounds good. Is it break time, Elliot? What's going on? I like it. All right. Well, in the meantime, why don't you give out our contact? <laughs> <laughs> one more time. Yeah, again, we'd love to hear from you today. Join the conversation we're having here. Um, we'd love to hear from you and, and, and value your input. Give us a call at 866-472-5790 to reach us live here on the radio program. As for Ken or Ethan, we'll be happy to speak with you. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network we spend 70 percent of our week in the office what is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it the number one motivator is a positive work environment and that's where real recognition radio comes in Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune into Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the show. Ken and Ethan here, and uh, we are talking about why investors aren't more successful and a little bit about behavioral finance. Um, going into the break, Ethan, you were sharing 
this was an article done in the uh, in one of the modules for continuing education in the College of Financial Planning that I was reading. It was a short one, but I thought it was very interesting, and I passed it along to the rest of the group here. Um, some really great books, by the way, if you want us to recommend a few on uh, the idea of investor psychology and, and why we... Why most of us probably should get some help or have a second pair of eyes on our financial uh, assets, um, particularly the larger that pool grows, because we have the tendency to, while we may have the knowledge, we may have the tendency to fall to some of these behavioral traps, as as, they, as the academics call them. Right. And so, anything to say about that? I just said yes, I oh, agree okay. with you. Great. Um, so you were reading about the study, right? That yeah, eighty four to two thousand three. She cites it the quant- quantitative analysis of investor behavior. I've heard it as the Dalbar study, but I don't know if those are the same. Um, same results, which was the average investor got about three and a half percent when the S and P five hundred, a simple index, got twelve point nine eight percent. Yeah. Um, now, in order to get that, you would have had to been invested in that index in nineteen eighty four, stayed invested in it all the way through two thousand three. And uh, hopefully rebalanced if you had a mix of stocks and bonds. Now, keep that in mind as we kind of go through this, because most people didn't do that. If you look at the amount of money invested in the S&P 500 index in 1984 relative to now, significantly different True. levels. So there probably weren't a lot of people doing that back then. The first retail fund came out, I think, in 77, 78. Sounds right. Um, and a lot of people shunned it, didn't quite gain steam until more and more of the studies about how uh, the failure of active management, in essence, that stock pickers and security analysts weren't adding a lot of value to most people's uh, portfolios. What are you, you going to do? So she goes on and says, I, I wanted to read a little bit of this. Uh, why is this, right? She says, first, mutual fund managers are rewarded if they have the highest short-term performance so it pays for them to play the performance game. And that game pays because investors are forever chasing hot funds in the belief that performance over uh, performance over as short a period as one single year is going to indicate that a fund manager is skilled and not lucky. Several fund companies have gone as far as setting up, a, up new incubator funds, and we've talked about this on like three or four years ago when yeah. we started doing some radio shows about these incubator funds that have the sole purpose of having at least one with great performance numbers so that they can be marketed aggressively. So on that, what happens is a mutual fund company, take any major brand of mutual fund company out there, they will launch uh, these incubator funds and maybe they self-seed these funds with their own asset money, right? Right. Are you following me, Ethan? So far, so good. And um, maybe they launch 20 small cap funds, um, maybe one of them actually beats the rest of the small cap managers in the universe. Now they can throw it into a rating system and um, and tout that wonderful performance that they had. Right. And if it gets a if it gets awarded a four star or five star rating, um, voila, voila, money comes Jackpot. pouring in hand over fist. That's right. Um, there's a number of games. We don't have time to go through all of them in this segment that these guys play, merging funds into each other and other things that they do. But what about the 19 other funds that, that underperform the market? They close those funds out. They conveniently go away. They go away. So what it's led you to believe is, well, geez, what we have one fund 
out, and that one fund happens to be a best performer. See what I'm saying? I do. Uh, makes it look really good, but if you were actually saying, well, geez, what was the likelihood? It was one out of 20 right. that would do better than the market. And it's not significant enough anyway over such a short period of time. All right, where, where was I? <laughs> okay, several fun, and I love what she says here um, after that. She says, our job is to protect investor clients from being tempted by the rules of thumb or conventional wisdom of the day. What's the problem? Well, investors suffer from information overload. Today, we know information is everywhere. Books, periodicals, magazines, radio shows like this one, Ethan. Uh, <laughs> advertisements, newspapers, websites, newsletters, TV shows, etc., etc. Still, information is not knowledge. So how do we sift through the noise? And noise is the result of, con- of, it, of the confusing delivery system that we've set up for investment advice. Who are investors going to trust to help them make smart investment decisions? That's one of the purposes of what we're trying to do here, Ethan. Their friends. Should they trust their friends, Ethan? Should they trust CPAs, bankers, attorneys, insurance agents? Um, I love that. Uh, I wish it was like a Dr. Seuss. I love reading that. Dr. Seuss to my kids. I love that. A mouse in a house and the fox in the box. Socks, all that stuff is funny. Um Insurance agents, stockbrokers, registered investment advisors, investment gurus, financial planners, relatives, and co-workers. They all have a large supply of advice, Ethan. That's true. That's true. You have any comments about this information overload? It definitely is information. So she lays out, and three, we have a whole list of our own. We could have pretty much wrote this paper and then multiplied it by 20, but she comes up with three things, and... That's first letting the emotions influence your investment decision. Second is chasing last year's winners or other hot investments. Third, relying on faulty rules of thumb. And I thought if we could try to scan through some of these, Ethan, and throw in our own flavor of advice onto it. Why not? (sighs) Well, all right. Emotions uh, influencing our decisions. Behavioral finance is the application of psychology to investors. There are three psychological phenomena that we must understand to make smart decisions about our money. And it was the three we just talked about. Um, Often investors experience disappointing returns because they have an emotional, undisciplined approach to investing. The greatest amount of value, pause on that, Ethan, that I think any advisor can bring to the table, and if they can't, you shouldn't pay them a nickel, is some disciplined process. If they are just as emotional or as undisciplined about the approach that they take to the investment strategy they're using... There's no value there, regardless of how much past performance they show you, if that past performance has significantly beat the market or not. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, how do I mean, feel about that? Your discipline is, is, a, is a critical, uh, a key ingredient for, for success when it comes to investments. If you don't have a disciplined process, uh, a disciplined way to manage your portfolio, um, you're very, very prone to make, make very, very costly mistakes. Rob Arnett uh, was pretty famous and wrote a book called Active Asset Allocation and Investing. Uh, said, what is comfortable is rarely profitable. However, we see investors using what we call the rearview mirror approach. Investors tend to frequently buy right. and sell at suboptimal. And that's the word I was looking for, optimal, earlier. Right. Uh, less than optimal economic or financial decisions. Uh-huh. 
Rather than buying low and selling high, they tend to do the opposite. Investors tend to add more to investments that are producing lower future returns. In other words, they are already producing returns, and investors tend to avoid investments that are producing increasingly greater future returns by having lower current returns. Do you want to explain that a little bit, Ethan? It's a little, little, little goofy. It sounds kind of counterintuitive, but it's one of those things where in the short term, it's often frequent that yesterday's losers become tomorrow's winners and vice versa. So if you keep, you're constantly chasing the winners, you're going to be constantly losing money. That's how I look at that. That's a function function of how the market tends to work in cycles in different areas. We just talked about it earlier. Who would have thought that international real estate would have been the 20 plus percent (laughs) producing asset class year to date, right? Pull up the articles. Show me they are. If you have them, send them into us. I'd love to see it. Of how many of you thought that that was the place to make 20% relative to buying other equity components around the world? Right. Um, one more thing. On oh, that really yes, quick. please, please. And that, the why that doesn't matter in the short run, why you shouldn't be doing that, is because over the long run, differences in return are explained by differences in risk. That's the, that's the main objective there. Right. So in the short run, yesterday's losers become tomorrow's winners and vice versa. But over the long run, it's differences in risk that actually you know, re- reach the, uh, the return that you're going to get. I'm not sure well, what that happened was, but there, but uh, that's, that's the way I look focused. at it. I agree. And... Okay, well, I guess we're out of time. <laughs> um, so surprise, surprise, I don't know what surprise. Time it is, but uh, we'll pick this up and go through the emotions uh, that investors go through next show. I promise. All righty. Well, Ethan, we're still here. Hey, great. Glad to be here. So maybe it's just a... you've enjoyed empirical investing radio with ken smith and ethan broga please join us again next thursday afternoon at 5 p.m eastern time and 2 p.m pacific time on the voice america business channel and for more information about empirical investing radio please call 800-923-4307 we'll see you next week